Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Brownstein Policy Advisors John Cesala and Travis Norton join Strategic Advisor Senator Mark Begich for a discussion on the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, its new arbitration rule, the use of the Congressional Review Act to oppose the new arbitration rule, current litigation pending against the CFPB, and the possibility of Director Cordray running for Governor of Ohio. Today we're joined by John Zazala and Travis Norton. And first, John Zazala is a policy advisor, is well known for his work here at Brownstein in the financial services arena, where he has helped bank and non-bank product and service providers navigate the House Financial Services Committee and Senate Banking Committee. We're also joined, as I mentioned, with Travis Norton, who's here as a policy advisor and of counsel. Previously, he was at the Chamber of Commerce Center for Capital Markets and Competitiveness, handling the CFPB portfolio. He also worked for Senator Scott of counsel in the banking and tax issues, and also worked for Chairman Jeb Hasserling, general counsel to the House Financial Services Committee. We're glad to have them both here today. We, we assume all the time when we do these podcasts that people understand all these different groups we talk about. Uh, but maybe, John, just a quick on uh, what is the CFPB? And, and then, but then um, we want to dive right into, you know, they're already starting to do some rule changes. They, uh, the Trump administration wants, you know, to, to have their druthers. I think they'd get rid of the whole organization. And then we have the current uh, – CEO of it, the, operate, the, the man in charge of the director, thinking of running for governor. So we got kind of an interesting activity going on with this organization. Um, maybe we can start with you, John, and then let's kind of dive right into it with both you and Travis. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, the origin of the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, actually really dates back to a paper that then Professor Elizabeth Warren wrote called Unsafe at Any Rate. And in that paper, she described the establishment or the needed establishment of a regulator that would look out for the consumer, look out for the little guy. She coined it the Consumer Financial Protection Agency, uh, which is actually kind of important uh, based on what she wrote and how it was eventually structured. But when they were considering the Dodd-Frank Act, um, you know, the CFPB made up a large portion of that, and it was established as a new regulator. It drew some authorities from existing regulators, such as the FTC and OCC and others, um, but was really giving broad and expansive new powers, both to do rulemaking, to supervise, to do enforcement, both on bank and non-bank entities. To date, really, since it's been stood up, uh, we've seen a variety of rulemaking enforcement actions on everything from consumer loans to auto finance loans to prepaid card products, and most recently to mandatory arbitration agreements, which I'm sure is going to be a big thing that we discussed today. Well, actually, let's let's start with that before we, we jump the traps. Let's go right into that about the arbitration. W- what's happened here? Something new has happened. Something right? something <laughs> new and uh, ever-evolving. We're having this podcast on Thursday, and even this morning, uh, there were more recent new developments. Um, so on July 10th, the CFPB announced that they were going to finalize their uh, final rule, which essentially does not ban mandatory arbitration agreements, but it significantly... These cur- are basically agreements when you get your credit card, or I'll, I'll use credit cards as an example. Correct. Uh, but in there, it's mandatory arbitration, in other words, not going to court, Correct. not going to small claims court, or any legal process of that nature. But when you get that credit card and you sign for it, 
if there's a dispute of some sort, you're going to mandatory arbitration. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and as I said, it doesn't completely ban the use of mandatory pre-dispute mandatory arbitration clauses. But what it does is it says consumers cannot be barred from bringing class action suits in court, um, which is a substantial Trial change. lawyers love this, uh, absolutely, probably, right? Absolutely. And this rulemaking, you know, for those that follow the CFPB, it's going to come as no surprise. In Dodd-Frank, the CFPB was actually given explicit authority to study mandatory arbitration agreements, and if it thought appropriate, to conduct a rulemaking to ban or limit their use. And just to your point about uh, they're using credit cards and other ca- card products. Absolutely true. They're very widely used. But I think that something that might get lost in this discussion a little bit is really just how broadly mandatory arbitration clauses are used in the contracts of consumer financial products and services. So whether it's automobile leases, money transfers, third-party billing services, there are a lot of industries impacted by this rule that you wouldn't consider your normal bank-type entities. A good example, and then, Travis, I'm going to ask you a broad question here, but a good example I'll throw is I've seen contract language used in leases, for example, that between two parties, uh, you know, uh, retail space or commercial space, office space, and they have that arbitra- arbitration mandatory clause in there, or it's a contract of services that someone's doing on behalf of someone. There's an arbitration clause, exactly. so it opens this, you know, Pandora's box in a certain way. Of what does this all mean down the road to these other instruments that are utilizing mandatory arbitration clauses, mm-hmm. which could change the whole dynamics? And you know, not that we have a lot of space in our court systems today to add more stuff to it, but this actually opens that door. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, part of it is absolutely for the CFPB that they want consumers to have their day in court. But I think there's a broader thematic issue there that they believe class actions, the CFPB and Director Richard Cordray believes that class actions are a way to Uh, keep financial institutions or really other industries offering these types of products to put a check on them, uh, right? I think to have them looking over their shoulder wondering, if we do X, is this going to end up in some sort of a class action litigation and create large exposure for our company? Obviously, industry has uh, a different view and believes that this is going to lead to a lot of uh, litigation and cost. And cost. And, you know, a lot of that cost, to your point, um, studies have shown that while law firms and litigators might do well uh, under allowing class actions and kind of getting away from pre, uh, pre-dispute mandatory arbitration, for consumers, the dollar figure is an, a, a large uptick. So it might lead to a lot more litigation, but maybe not as much in the back pocket of consumers. Travis, so the Trump administration, uh, President Trump ran on the me- message of, you know, less regulation, less government, that, that mantra, and one of the pieces to the equation is going to be, um, you know, he's going to be, you know, looking at organizations like this and have been looking at organizations like this and trying to figure out what to do, how to manage them or get less of them. Uh, what do you see down the road in regards to this organization and uh, uh, CFPB and and the Trump administration? So the status of the CFPB as an independent uh, regulatory agency is in jeopardy right now. There's a case uh, percolating through the courts called PHH. There was a three-judge panel um, that found that the the structure of the CFPB as codified in Title 10 of the Dodd-Frank Act violates some of the principles of separation of powers 
the director is removable only for cause right now. Um, the agency receives its funding through a sort of ask and you shall receive mechanism through the Federal Reserve System. Um, there's so virtually congressional not congressional appropriations. There's virtually uh, no opportunity for Congress to conduct oversight over the Bureau. And so there's been a legal challenge in the courts that's still unresolved. But one of the potential outcomes of that litigation is that the director will have to be uh, removable at will, at the will of the president, because um, the Bureau is performing largely an executive function uh, and exercising some of the police power of the uh, of Title II. Uh, I'm sorry, of Article 2 of the Constitution. So if that case were to come out in that way, um, I think that the president would very swiftly remove the director uh, who, as you mentioned, um, may remove himself, may remove himself <laughs> to go run for governor of Ohio. But uh, other than that, or until that litigation is resolved, there's virtually little that the administration can do to have an impact on the CFPB. Uh, the CFPB can bring uh, and defend lawsuits in its own name until it reaches the Supreme Court. So it's not like DOJ. Do we have uh, a sense of timetable of that case kind of moving forward in regards to their ability to do certain things? You said a three-judge panel. But so it's what, being what's reheard kind of, on bank, okay. and um, uh, everything has been briefed uh, and argued, and now we're just waiting for the decision. At the same time, however, there are some political calculations. I do think that the director um, would not have minded, and again, this is just speculation, if the administration had tried to uh, remove him under the the holding of the three-judge panel of the mm -hmm. D.C. Circuit because then, uh, you know, going back to Ohio, that gives him a little bit of something perhaps to run on. I mean, Elizabeth Warren is an example, right? Mm -hmm. you know, right. She couldn't get nominated or uh, approved. Yep. And the end result is she's now a U.S. senator. That's right. <laughs> you know, but the flip uh, side is Jeff Sessions couldn't get approved as a judge many years ago. And now he's the attorney general and was a U.S. senator. So it actually, you know, the actions of a White House in their actions sometimes create a bigger problem for him down the road. I think that's right. And, uh, you know, but in the meantime, there's very little that the administration can do to curb the CFPB's rulemaking authority. Um, this week, there uh, is a Congressional Review Act uh, resolution of disapproval introduced in the House and one is forthcoming in the Senate to overturn this arbitration rule. So let me pause you there for a second. So there still is that congressional power to do or yes. is that in question? Nope. The Congressional so Review Act. Over, so the rule could, and that is not within, I mean, knowing the Senate and the House, the way they're configured now, those rule change could easily be overturned. I think that's true. I do think that uh, folks will be surprised, um, at least in the Senate, as to... Uh, I, I don't think that um, this is a slam dunk in the Senate right now. I think that there needs to be some more spade work. But I, I do think at the end of the day that the CRA does get by, but I do think it will be more difficult uh, than people anticipate. What, what do you think, John, in, in the Senate side that, I mean, do you think that the House probably will do it, but will the Senate do it? Well, I think that's and, a, and it may indicate future things, right? So does that embolden? Let's say the Senate fails to overturn the rule. Does that embolden the CFPB to say, well, let's do some more rules while we have the window? I, I think it's absolutely right that a failure of the CRA to succeed 
could embolden the CFPB, and we might say see additional rulemakings. For example, there's still uh, a proposed rule that's out there regulating the payday lending and auto loan industry, and that's something in the queue. So you could see uh, Director Cordway moving forward with that. In terms of the math, and just to remind uh, the listeners that the Congressional Review Act uh, is a statute that it's been around for decades, um, and really up until the start of this year, it had only been successfully deployed once, and that was on a Clinton era regulation that was introduced toward the end of his term and then was overturned by uh, the new Republican Congress and President Bush when he was elected. The CRA is very advantageous in that it allows Congress expedited procedures to block uh, regulatory agencies' rulemakings, including those of independent agencies like the CFPB. And it only takes 50 plus one. It only takes that. On the I Senate mean, that's side. the main uh, advantage in the Senate side. Uh, there's, there's no chance for amending it or adding in amendments. It's a very straightforward process. Um, it only requires a majority vote in the Senate. There's limited debate. And in addition to that, if Congress is successful in passing a resolution of disapproval, as they're called, blocking a rule. Not only is that rule blocked, but the agency that issued the rule is barred from issuing a substantially similar rule ever again in the future until Congress gives it explicit authority to do so. But I think is, as you and Travis both indicated, in the House, I would call this a slam dunk. I think you know we've seen a resolution of disapproval introduced today. And reminder that the rule was published in the Federal Register just yesterday. So this is Wednesday. <laughs> the House moved fairly it quickly, thir- which is not a common thing in Washington. Absolutely. <laughs> it is Thursday morning. We already have a resolution of disapproval introduced in both the House and Senate. And the House, every member, every Republican member of the House Financial Services Committee has signed on as a co-sponsor. And I think they'll be able to move that and move that successfully. In the Senate, you have to remember they need 50 votes. uh, And with uh, the tragedy and what Senator McCain is seeing coming off surgery and now fighting brain cancer, they only have 51 votes in the Senate. So they have one to lose. And if they lose two, it's over. It's over. I I don't see, while there are some moderate Democrats who have raised concern about the arbitration rule, one of them really crossing the valley in order to provide the winning vote for a resolution. I think that's hard to see. And you also have to remember that mandatory Congress does, even on a bipartisan basis, have some history of scaling back the application of pre-dispute mandatory arbitration clauses. So take the um, take the military, for example, mm-hmm. in loans that are given to service members, there are strict limitations that are codified in law by Congress uh, limiting their usage. And we've seen that in a few in a few other cases, including in the mortgage industry. So uh, I think while there's definitely a pathway forward in the Senate, it's going to be a very close vote count. At the same time, just to put a little context, though, the Federal Arbitration Act, which got, which which basically tells courts that they have to honor arbitration clauses, continues to be upheld even at the Supreme Court. In 2011, there was a case called AT&T versus Concepcion that dealt with uh, some arbitration clauses and mobile phone carrier contracts. And even, I think it was 2013 or maybe a little later, American Express versus Italian Colors. The Supreme Court continues and continues to uphold um, the a preference for arbitration expressed in a contract. So I think the, the argument here on CFPB really is that the carve-out in Title X for arbitration in consumer financial contracts uh, was enacted after the Federal Arbitration Act, and therefore Congress intended it to be a carve-out. But I would, I would caution folks not to read too deeply into... Um, the success. The CFPB's rule is going to be challenged not only by a Congressional Review Act 
um, resolution, but also in court. The CFPB did put out a study in 2015 laying out its case for um, for prohibiting class action waivers and consumer financial contracts. Uh, a wide variety of academics have criticized that study. Um, a smaller number of them have said that the study actually supports the opposite conclusion that the Bureau reached. Um, I happen to have testified at the CFPB's arbitration field hearing. I was probably one of those people uh, making that argument uh, when I worked for the Chamber of Commerce. Um, but uh, I think that we're going to see a CRA challenge and we're going to see a legal challenge for sure. And um, But again, just to put context, this doesn't affect arbitration more broadly. There are other efforts. Dodd-Frank also uh, contained authority for the SEC to prohibit uh, arbitration in um, securities transactions, but FINRA already has a compulsory arbitration process. So that really hasn't been taken up uh, as much by the SEC. But again, this isn't the death of arbitration, but it is a very significant piece of it and um, no doubt a success for the trial bar. Let me, uh, we're pretty much at the end of our time here, but you know, from a Brownstein perspective, from our, you know, you, you guys are working in the financial services, kind of that arena in many ways. The team here continues to have uh, this issue never ends, it seems. There's always something going on, so we get a lot of probably inquiries from our clients on this. Uh, do you, I guess the summary thought here, do you think there, uh, when you think of this issue, Dodd-Frank and a few others, do you think there's any, you know, when clients are contacting us or talking to us, do you think there's any major shift that's going to occur, or is it more going to be these just constant tweaks and turns and twists? Yeah, so what I would say is, uh, first of all, that the CFPB is staying power. You know, I think after Dodd-Frank, there was an initial discussion, especially as Republicans took over the House and then took over the Senate, that they might eliminate the Bureau altogether. Uh, I don't think that's really within the realm of possibility, and I think very few people are still talking about that. That being said, there are constant ongoing efforts to make significant modifications to the authority of the CFPB, whether it is their rulemaking supervisory or enforcement power. Uh, some of those things were included in the Financial Choice Act that Chairman Henserling uh, introduced and passed through committee and moved on the floor earlier this year. That being said, I think the more likely case and the more likely turn in position, attitude, activity of the CFPB is going to come when Richard Cordray either steps down or his term expires. You remember there was a long protracted fight around his confirmation process. He was recess appointed, and then he was eventually confirmed in the summer of 2013. So he had a five-year term, and regardless of whether or not he enters the gubernatorial race, which most recent media speculation and comments suggest he, he will do that, either way, his term expires in the summer of 2018, which will allow President Trump to appoint a new director. You know, names being floated have included folks like former Congressman Randy Nugabauer. Whoever takes over, whoever is the Trump appointee and takes over the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is obviously going to have a very different lens about rulemaking, about enforcement, about supervisory. And those things, uh, that action alone, I think, will drastically change what the CFPB is doing. Travis? I think that's exactly right. The, the CFPB, in the view of Republicans, has represented and fulfilled um, a view of the centralization of um, – sort of one-size-fits-all regulation on the consumer financial market. I think that um, to the extent that a Republican-aligned director or commission were to be um, 
were to sit atop the commission uh, or the or the bureau as it's currently constituted, I think that you would see a lot uh, more decentralization. There are some ideas where um, you could kind of take out all the bureau's regulations by reproposing them in one wrap and then doing a quick CRA to undo a lot of it. Um, that may sound crazy, but it has been floated. And I do think that um, there's an effort. Uh, look, the, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is too well-named to get rid of it, uh, I think, uh, to John's point. <laughs> Sometimes a name makes a difference. <laughs> but there, is, there are thoughts to make it um, function a little bit more like the FTC, off of which its uh, unfair, deceptive, and abusive practices statute uh, is modeled, to turn it more into sort of an enforcement agency and less of a rulemaking agency. Um, and I do think that that uh, is on the horizon. Um, I do think that there's merit to uh, a centralized uh, agency for some of the consumer financial law, which before Dodd-Frank was really scattered among several different agencies. There's probably some benefit to that. But again, um, I think the view is Title X went way too far. Um, and um, and I think that we will see significant rollbacks over the next few years once we get um, new leadership. Um, I think one thing to watch for, it will be interesting, we've seen uh, former Congressman Scott Garrett, who uh, during his tenure in Congress vociferously opposed the existence of the Exim Bank, is now nominated um, to serve as its chairman. Um, I think it will be interesting, uh, John referred to the confirmation fight uh, in 2012 and 2013 over Director Cordray. I think it'll be interesting to see what uh, Senate Democrats do with a new uh, nominee to lead the Bureau. They support the Bureau in its mission, but it's sort of neutered if there isn't a director. So I think they'll have a little bit of um, thinking to do on there. So here's the crystal ball. Last question. Easy question for you. So does uh, Director Cordray uh, step down and run for governor? John? Uh, I would say yes. And for those who don't know Director Cordray, he served as the treasurer of Ohio. He served as the attorney general of Ohio. And uh, I think one of the reasons we actually got a final mandatory arbitration rule and why we could get others is that he's trying to do as much as he can, he can in these last final months of his time at the Bureau in preparation for exiting to run for governor. So I think he does. Travis? I also think he does. And I think the arbitration, finalizing the arbitration rule was really sort of a parting shot. I've often said that it's a win-win for him. He either wins by uh, garnering uh, some political support from uh, the trial bar groups like the American Association of Justice, uh, formerly the American Trial Lawyers Association. Um, so there's some political support, perhaps some um, pecuniary support behind that. And if the CRA or litigation is successful, I think he returns to Ohio as sort of the crusader who fought um, but maybe lost um, for consumers. And I think that that's a compelling story as well. There's a formidable um, cast of characters on the Republican side. Uh, Mike DeWine, a former senator, I believe, is speculated to run, uh, as well as some other um, congressmen, um, uh, Jim Renacci. So I think um, there will be some... Uh, a spirited a, race. A very spirited race. But uh, um, Director Cordray is um, 
for as much as I personally disagree with uh, a lot of what he has done, he's a very uh, intelligent, intellectual and able man and a very good public servant. And I think he will be a formidable candidate for governor if that's what he chooses to do. Very good. And there was, I think, five Democrats already in that primary. So, uh, again, thank you both. You know, I think uh, Brownstein, the Brownstein team is uh, very fortunate to have you both part of the team. And obviously, the work we do here never ends, especially around this issue. It seems like every day there's something popping up uh, with a rule or some new regulation, new law that's out there. So, again, thank you both for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.